There's an ever-increasing pool of investors for life science real estate. And that will include a handful of publicly traded REITs, uh, lots of private equity firms, to national pension funds, to sovereign wealth funds and insurance companies, all trying to get into the life science space. But because of the specialization, there are going to be some clear winners and some clear losers in terms of what's being built and what they'll long-term success of those individual projects are going to be. Uh, a rising tide lifts all boats, but at some point that tide will recede and, and we'll, we'll clearly see who those winners and, and losers are. That was Nasir Alamgir, head of U.S. real estate debt portfolio management at Barings. And this is Streaming Income, a podcast from Barings. I'm your host, Greg Campion, and I'd like to welcome you to episode number five of season four of Streaming Income. All season long, we are diving deep into the factors shaping today's markets across asset classes like EM debt, high yield, private credit, real estate, and more. Remember, if you'd like to receive our latest insights as soon as they become available, you can follow us by searching Streaming Income on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. My guests today are Nasir Alamgir, Head of Real Estate Debt Portfolio Management, and Joe Gorin, Head of Value-Add Investing and U.S. Portfolio Management at Barings Real Estate. Barings Real Estate is a global real estate group with over $47 billion in assets under management or advisement as of December 31st, 2020. The group consists of over 190 dedicated investment professionals based in offices across nine different countries and allocating capital across real estate debt and equity markets covering all major sectors and styles. Our conversation today focused on the growing opportunity in the life sciences real estate market. Specifically, we spoke about the big picture trends that are driving both tenant demand for life science properties as well as investor interest. We talked about the geographic markets that are seeing the highest density of clustering when it comes to education, science, and technology talent, and how that's driving demand for more specialized life science properties. And finally, we discussed the different attachment points for investors to consider when allocating capital to this space, from mezzanine debt to equity stakes and assets being developed or repositioned. So with that, please enjoy this conversation with Nasir Alamgir and Joe Gorin. All right, Joe Gorin and Nasir Alamgir, welcome to Streaming Income. I'm very excited to have you guys here. Uh, Of course, we're doing this remotely today. Uh, Joe, where does that mean you are calling in from? Uh, well, less typical for me in my home office in Mamaroneck, New York. I am actually down in uh, Key Largo, Florida, so working remotely for the month of March down here. So uh, no complaints. <laughs> That's great. I'm very jealous given some of the weather that we've had here uh, recently. How about you, Nasir? Uh, I'm at home in, in, in New York City on the Upper West Side uh, in my home office. So uh, it's, been, uh, it's been my home for the last 12 months. Yeah, yeah, that's that's great. I love the Upper West Side. I used to be a resident there uh, myself. Um, all right, well, guys, we have a very interesting topic to talk about here today, and that is the life sciences space within the uh, world of commercial real estate. 
Uh, and I'm excited to have both of you specifically talking about this uh, because you are part of the same team, but you come at this really from two different angles, Joe from the equity side, Nasir from the debt side. So I think it will be very interesting to hear the way that you look at the space uh, from those different perspectives. So, all right, Joe, let's start high level here with you. And I actually wanted to just ask you if you wouldn't mind defining uh, life sciences up front for us and then maybe talking to us about what it is that you think is driving this really increased level of investor interest across the life sciences space. Thanks, Greg. Um, and and uh, by no means am I a scientist. Right. <laughs> so I'll give you the, the, the layman's interpretation of life science and then really how we look at it from a real estate perspective. But you know, life science is essentially the study of living organisms and, and life processes. Um, but it has a much you know, broader meaning when, when, when you look at it from a real estate perspective. And it's really more of a catch-all term across a number of uses of real estate, which include biotechnology, uh, pharmaceuticals, which are really the most obvious tenants for life science, but it also includes mm-hmm. medical device manufacturers and more technology-oriented tenants in the, in the fields of digital healthcare and genomics. It's a kind of all-encompassing term. It's an all-encompassing term, yes. Um, but what's important to understand is that each of these subsectors requires specialized physical in- infrastructure, which can make real estate more costly, um, but also much more valuable. Um, you know, the answer to why investors are increasingly attracted to the space is, is simply because demand continues to exceed new supply. And that's been going on for years, especially in the top uh, major life science markets, such as Cambridge, Massachusetts, San Francisco, uh, San Diego. And, you know, there's some strong durable trends uh, and, and most notably on demographic side, which include an aging baby boomer population, longer lifespans, more requirements for pharmaceuticals, um, but also converging with tech innovation, uh, which is also in tandem increasing public and private research funding into the area. Investors are taking note of this. They see the increasing um, demand, the lowering vacancy rates, the increasing rents, and all the headline news that's out there about it. And and that's really what what's driving their interest today. Yeah, so that's interesting. There's it seems to be a lot of just structural long-term growth. And, and we'll we'll talk a, a little bit about, you know, some of the things that have been going on more recently, specifically the pandemic and what that's done to uh, demand in this space uh, a little later. Um, but if we think about, you know, you mentioned some of the, the the key markets here, whether it's, you know, Cambridge or, uh, you know, Boston more broadly or uh, San Francisco or others. Um, Nasir, talk to us about, you know, some of these cities or regions that are offering some of the most attractive opportunities in life sciences today. And then maybe if there's common threads between them. Yeah, let me start off by pointing out that we're seeing an ever-growing number of regions beyond the ones that Joe has mentioned and cities vying for life science jobs. And I guess you could ask, why are these communities chasing after life science jobs? It's because STEM workers have a median annual earnings that are 43% higher Mm -hmm. than non-STEM workers. So that's clearly providing a boost to local and state economies. At Bearings, we've been investing in life science real estate for over a decade now, and we've watched this asset class really evolve from a niche subsector of office, as Joey pointed out to, to a real growth engine of not only real estate, uh, of the real estate industry, but the overall economy. And what we've observed over the last 10 years of investing in this space through both debt and equity 
is that there are two primary factors or common threads needed for the creation and success of a life science node. The first is access to a highly educated population. We kind of define that as over 40% of the demographic has a bachelor's degree or higher. And the second is a strong base of STEM employment. And that means 10% or more of jobs are in science, technology, engineering, and the mathematics fields. Now, when you utilize that criteria of education and STEM employment, and you analyze cities across the country, you have obvious winners like San Francisco and Boston. Uh, Joe touched on those. Those are at the top of the list. Uh, they're you know, by far and away the largest markets globally for the life science industry. But there are a handful of interesting nodes that appear beyond them. Um, our research team has actually identified 16 markets in total that they have coined as the best markets. And this is a podcast, so you can't see my air quotes right now, but <laughs> BEST is actually an acronym for Bearings, Education, Science, and Technology Markets. And these markets include some obvious and less obvious names. So we talked about San Diego, but they include Seattle, Salt Lake City, Austin, Denver, Dallas, and Raleigh, to name a few. Some of those markets are, uh, you know, it seems like they're more kind of up and coming. And I've seen some some really interesting stats out there. I think... Uh, uh, IREI had a, a really interesting report on life sciences where they uh, quoted some some pretty staggering statistics, one of which was uh, this one. So since 2000, so over the last 21 years, employment in life sciences has increased 87.9% versus uh, the U.S. Uh, overall 14.4%. So basically 6x the employment growth in life sciences as opposed to the economy as a whole. So clearly a very, very much a growth area. And I think everything that you just mentioned around um, salary levels, education levels, et cetera, is very supportive of that um, continued growth. Um, you know, Joe, if we look kind of just more uh near term and what's been going on over the last year in this space, how has COVID impacted this space uh, altogether? You know, life science typically gets categorized within the larger umbrella of office. Um, and we all know um, how challenging the office environment has been simply because of the lack of, of transparency and, and, and leasing activity. Um, the outlier is really life science. I mean, the life science demand hasn't missed a beat during the pandemic. Um, it's actually beaten faster. Uh, we've seen demand strengthen in, in many of the clustered locations I mentioned. But, you know, on top of that, I think what investors like is that there is transparency because deals are getting done, whether it's on the leasing side or it's on the capital markets transactional side or it's a financing deal. As an example, it's hard for me to tell you where office rents are um, for basic office and let's pick a market Boston, which, you know, again, Cambridge and, and parts of Boston, the Seaport District, have become, you know, kind of, of hotbeds of, of life science. But, you know, the rents for standard office space due to that limited activity um, is hard to figure out. And to get a real deal done, you're probably adding free rent and uh, there's some rent reductions and you're not getting a full lease term out of it. So I can't give you the true net effect of rent in Boston right now. However, I can certainly tell you where rents are in the Seaport District and Cambridge for life science. And they are 30 to $50 per square foot higher on average than standard office rents were even before the oh, pandemic wow. in Boston. So these premiums that you're seeing um, for life science in during the pandemic are continuing. They're growing because the supply is limited. The demand is just as strong, if not greater, than it was before the pandemic. 
And a lot of that has to do with the pandemic itself. There's a lot of research funding going into um, help uh, you know grow some of these startups who were partnered with some of the larger pharmaceutical companies and helping them research new vaccines. Um, you know, but I do believe that um, COVID you know has had a secular impact on the life science industry. This this isn't just limited to the pandemic. I think we've learned an important lesson uh, during the health crisis. There's been a growing trend to onshore biomanufacturing. Uh, this has been a wake-up call, and you know we've got to fund more into research and logistics, foreshadowing, unfortunately, the impact of potential future pandemics. Um, but don't forget that you know medical and, and tech innovation and supportive demographic trends had already been uh, durable and and really helping to support life science, uh, along with the convergence uh, that I talked about before. You know there are trends within the life science industry that are here to stay for a very long time. COVID has only accelerated a lot of them. Nasir, as we look up and down the capital structure, and I know that's that's one thing that that the team at Bearings is really focused on, is kind of not just looking at equity, not just looking at debt, but but looking really across uh, all the opportunities and the different attachment points um, throughout the capital structure. Tell me a little bit about how you're thinking about this and how the team's thinking about this, because Let's say you know you, you uh, identify an attractive uh, asset, whether it's in Boston or one of these other markets. I mean, how would you go about figuring out you know if the most attractive place to invest, whether it's equity, debt, something else? Well, I'm going to define the most attractive as sort of the best risk-adjusted return. So that part of the capital stack where we think we're getting the highest reward for for, for taking the least amount of risk. So when we try to determine where that best risk-adjusted reward is we really look to assess two essential criteria, the building and our basis. And what I mean by that is, first we want to understand the physical aspects of the building, elevator capacity, ceiling heights, floor plate configuration, uh, the amount of load it can take. Uh, And then we want to understand the property's position or attractiveness within the neighborhood, which in turn affects its ability to lease up and what rents it can achieve. And then we're also looking at the health of the broader life science node or cluster. Is it within an established cluster or is it an emerging one? And then we pivot and focus on basis. And so what is our last dollar exposure per square foot? And are there any hidden costs associated with leasing or impending changes to real estate taxes or expenses that could affect our view of how attractive that basis is when compared to other similar properties in the market? And that latter item basis can vary greatly. When you're in a market like Cambridge and you're in a, a specific build asset type for life science, your exposure can be 1,500 or more a square foot. Uh, if you're in a suburban location, that exposure could be half of that. So again, we're looking at location coupled with basis. I'll let Joe chime in sort of from an equity perspective. From a debt lens We have three thematic views for 2021 from a capital structure perspective. The first is for us to lend on properties that have a lighter transitional business strategy or lease-up schedule. We think taking some of that risk out of the asset performance um, provides a a nice risk-adjusted return profile. The second is to provide ground-up construction financing. Uh, And in, in growing segments like life science, where demand is outstripping supply, it's a great time to be a construction lender. Uh, 
And the third, which is somewhat unique to life science, is to finance sort of full conversion and or rehabilitation plans. Because trying to keep up with demand, it's hard to do when you're doing just ground up construction. A lot of times we're converting uh, old office buildings that have the right configuration into life science projects. But maybe Joe wants to give you an equity perspective. This year, and, and, and I often um, debate or joke about what the opportunity in, in debt, um, you know, looking at where next year's team is investing in the capital stack, uh, you know, in great locations for great product. Um, you know, we're seeing a lot of that on the debt side. The equity side, I get really excited about. Um, but you've got to be very disciplined because, you know, I've been investing in life science for, uh, I hate to admit my age here, but, you know, over 20 years now. And typically there was cap rate um, premiums for life science that were, call it 100 to 150 basis points higher than what you'd, you'd pay for standard office. And, and a lot of that was in consideration of the credit quality of a lot of these life science tenants. Um, when you're looking at life science, yeah, there are some of the bigger guys and more mature companies. But you have to understand that a lot of these are venture-backed startups who are going into clinical trials that don't have revenue streams. Um, so while the demand is great, um, you still have to look at you know who's paying you rent and and are they going to be able to stay in your building long enough to to really succeed. The good news is over time, with technology and improvements uh, in infrastructure there are reusable installations out there. So if a tenant fails, there's another tenant who can utilize the same laboratory space and office footprint, but there are some costs associated with that as well. So, you know, on the equity side, I still am looking to make sure that we've got the right spread between what we believe our stabilized income will be, whether it's ground up development or repositioning. But we also have to remember um, you know, on the equity side, that not all buildings are convertible. And, you know, let, let, let's look at the size of the overall market. There's 4 billion square feet of office space in the U.S. Just about 150 million square feet of that is a component of commercial lab. Um, so not all buildings are convertible. Now, there's not a need for as much lab, obviously. And this year noted on the important points, but I just want to really highlight to those people listening, you know, if you're talking to managers, you're looking at taking on some of these projects yourselves, be very, very focused, especially in the conversions on, you know, the floor load capacities. There's heavy equipment that goes into these buildings. Make sure that the freight elevators um, have the right capacity, that floor plates are the right size. Typically, um, biotech users and a lot of these life science users don't want to be on floor plates that are much less than 20,000 square feet. So the larger the floor plate size, the better. The, the loading dock capacity for the amount of activity that's going on and, and bringing in materials and taking materials out of a life science building is much greater than your standard office building. And then you've got to have just simply more space within the building. You have specific infrastructure for life science, uh, such as emergency generators, waste disposal areas, um, even you know vivarium build-outs for certain types of tenants. From the equity perspective, we're focused on a lot of the you know valuation metrics and, and, and as I noted just now, a lot of the, the physical metrics. Yeah, that I mean, there's there's obviously so much to consider when you're looking to reposition uh, some of these assets. I mean, um, you you mentioned some of these factors, whether you're thinking about load capacities or elevator cores or even things like clean space or sinks. I mean, um, I imagine it's quite the involved uh, process. Um, but you mentioned that you know even if some of these projects are for early stage companies, the space may be reusable. Um, so t- tell me a little bit more about that because I'm just interested 
because it is so specific uh, as to what these companies actually need in terms of the space. I'm interested to hear a little bit more about that and also uh, you know, how that could be converted as companies grow themselves uh, from startup to uh, more mature companies. How, how does that kind of all look and play out in real life? Yeah, there, there's really you know phases to life science real estate. So I'll give you an example of a, of, of a project that we're working on right now. Um, we've got a, a 200,000 square foot office building. It, it's high quality. It's located in downtown San Diego. So we really like the market. Um, but we're really gearing our investment strategy there towards incubation tenants. Um, so much of the growth in the life science is simply because of the research funding you're seeing right now. Um, there's the ability of these startups coming out of research groups like Scripps and UC San Diego and MIT, you know, moving west to east, that um, that's really where there's a real opportunity to capture a lot of that early phase demand. And a lot of those tenants on the incubation side um, are plug and play. They have an idea, they have funding, and they need to get into real estate to start working on on their research and and hopefully eventually their manufacturing and distribution. Um, so I'll give you an example. Here's a deal that we valued at the outset at about four hundred dollars a foot. Um, we're going to invest another three hundred dollars a foot in that building. So our all-in basis with carry cost and the hard cost of three hundred plus our basis, you know, we'll be getting to eight hundred to eight hundred and fifty dollars a foot at the end of the day. But with regard to the phasing for those tenants. We're going to spec out almost 80% of their build out because we know those incubation tenants um, want to be plug and play. So if you're looking at kind of the early stage, then you're better off kind of going down that road of, of really figuring out what they want and investing in that. Because it, when this market becomes more competitive and a lot of landlords are looking at converting their buildings, the more that you can do to satisfy these tenants up front, I think is a good thing. Um, as these tenants start to grow and expand, um, you know, that's when you get into the second category. And, and I'll give you an example of a market like Cambridge, right? You, you're starting to see a lot of the earlier stage tenants start to look towards, okay, they have an idea, um, they've gotten through their clinical trials, and now they need more of a campus environment. And you've seen a lot of growth um, in Boston out along the 128 corridor into Lexington and Route 2, where some of the larger or smaller groups to begin with that became larger needed just more area. And in a lot of these clustering, I call it urban settings, it's harder to find the larger buildings. And that's where you start to see less of the conversion and more of the ground up development. Um, years ago, our platform uh, built out for Texas World Headquarters in the Seaport District of Boston. Um, you know, they were a growing tenant out of Cambridge that, that moved into a much larger campus. In Boston, so there's the opportunity also to invest with these smaller tenants who are have the research grants, get their clinical trial approvals, their FDA approvals, and then they really start to grow. and And then you start to think about okay, where are the locations where you can find the truly larger uh, footprints? Um, in San Diego, where we're doing our incubation uh, strategy, there's another investor who took down land and is looking at building 1.6 million square feet of space for some of the larger later phase tenants. And they'll even do that speculatively. Now, what's important is to have connectivity into these tenants. So when you're investing, you want to be talking to the tenants themselves. You want to be working with sponsors who speak the vernacular of life science so they understand where these companies are in their life cycle, where the risks are, 
where they may be shrinking or failing or where they may be growing. Um, but part of our job as real estate investors is not just to look at this as a bricks and mortar business, but to really look at it from the eyes of the tenants and understand their particular business and invest in those businesses as well. Because at the end of the day, that's where the value is. The value is them paying rent in your building, staying and, and maximizing value. Yeah. I mean, in terms of like setting up the space and being, you know, all these very specific requirements, it, it almost reminds me, and, you know, we talk a lot about different asset classes on, on this podcast. It almost reminds me of like the concept of a complexity premium when we're talking about, you know, let's say something like structured credit, right? Whereas, you know, um, there there is premium to potentially be earned there uh, with with these very complex. In that case, it's more kind of financial structuring that's being done. But in this case, it is physical structuring of these spaces that is being done to the requirements of, of these tenants that have very very specific requirements. Um, is that was is that sort of an applicable analogy? Would you say? Yeah, I mean, the interesting part of it now is. Um, you know, there's the straight math which says, okay, if I need to spend an additional two to three hundred dollars a foot on a a lab installation or biotech uh, a build out between lab and office, um, you know, and I want to get a return on that, then right out of the box, I need twenty to thirty dollars a foot in additional rent beyond what an office tenant would require. So, you know, that's less about the scarcity premium and more just about to stay even on my investment. I need, I need that additional rent just to be neutral. Um, but what we're starting to see in a number of these markets is not just the you know, amortization of the cost into the rent, but it's really that scarcity. I think what you're, mentioned, what you're alluding to is the scarcity premium, where now you get into an even more profitable situation where tenants are fighting for space. So you're not just getting the $20 to $30 premium, but you may be eclipsing that. And then the question is for the investor, what cap rate are you going to put on that premium rent? That you believe will continue into the future, and I will tell you, as a equity investor in real estate, I'm very careful to to not assume that that scarcity premium is going to just grow to the sky, because more people are looking at converting buildings, more people are looking at developing buildings. I just mentioned the 1.6 million square feet of of, of opportunity that, that that will be built out in in downtown San Diego next to our project. So. I think you got to be very careful in looking at that scarcity premium, but on a real-time basis right now where we sit, investors are, are believing it and firms are raising money for it and it's real. So let's talk about that competitive environment um, that's driving some of these dynamics. So Nasir, if you think about uh, you know who you guys are coming up against uh, in, in terms of competition, I'm curious. You know, given all the growth in this space that we've already talked about, is this space uh, as competitive as let's say the logistics market, uh, for instance? And then you know, it would be interesting to hear how you and the team are actually going about sourcing deals. Yeah, well, I think you touched on this already, which is it, it, there is a level of specialization that is needed for the life science space that industrial is sort of the exact opposite. It's almost like you're slapping four right, walls together right. and putting a roof on it. Um, so there is a level of specialization, but it doesn't mean that competition isn't increasing. I, I look at it similar to the way I look at the number of cities pursuing life science jobs. There's an ever-increasing pool of investors for life science real estate. And that will include a handful of publicly traded REITs, 
lots of private equity firms to national pension funds to sovereign wealth funds and insurance companies all trying to get into the life science space. But because of the specialization, there are going to be some clear winners and some clear losers in terms of what's being built and what the long-term success of those individual projects are going to be. Uh, a rising tide lifts all boats, but at some point that tide will recede and, and we'll, we'll clearly see who those winners and, and losers are. When it comes to uh, real estate debt, we spend a lot of time focused on sponsorship because that's the critical part of the end product being built. And because of that complexity, we want to make sure that we're supporting the right developers, the right owners, and the right operators. And because of that focus on sponsorship, that's actually the primary way we source uh, our, our deal flow is through the relationships that we have made and formed with best-in-class owners and operators. Uh, but it's it's definitely a, a, a competitive landscape. It continues to be increasingly competitive. But I think the quality of the product that's being built today uh, can vary. And at some point, you know, when when demand doesn't exceed supply as, mu- as much as it does in this space, tenants will be a little bit more discerning about where they go. And is everything that you just said applicable both for the debt and the equity spaces? Yeah, no, I, 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 um, I completely agree with Nasir that sponsorship is, 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 you know, foremost. Um, as I said before, you know, speaking the vernacular of, of the tenants themselves, understanding exactly what they want, um, but also being able to cost it out. You have to, you know, having done it before, knowing the right layouts and knowing some of the new technologies that are out there and, and, and even, you know, let's remember, I mean, life science, um, I, you know, the people who work within life science are the same as the workers uh, who inhabit the office buildings. And they're a skilled subset and they demand a lot of their, the, the, the real estate that they work within. They want the same amenitization. And a lot of these um, life science companies are competing to, to steal researchers and scientists from other firms. And so the real estate has to provide that kind of same amenitization. It's got to be in the right um, areas. You know, the clustering effect is important because not just because the companies want to be around the companies, but the people want to be around the people. Um, so we want to be with sponsors who get that and they know what the tenants want, not just on the technical side, um, but what's really important to the scientists and workers within the buildings themselves. And just again, so we, we, we don't lose sight of this, um, sponsorship can vary in terms of what they're actually building, right? So the ability to convert uh, an old office or warehouse building into life science is a different skill set than building a life science uh, from the ground up. And building a life science project for a single individual user is different from building a life science project for multiple users. So even those sponsors that might be good at one thing may not be good at the other. So there's there's a lot that goes into each one of these individual projects, and it takes a lot of time and patience to understand each of those components. You know, with the amount of capital that's coming on, you know, we're starting to see some sponsors who, you know, I wouldn't call them, um, you know, 100% dedicated to the life science field. They're smart real estate developers and investors. Um, but some of these conversions, people are taking some real forward-looking risk, and maybe it's forward-looking opportunity. But not all conversions are are great today for for not just because of the physical element, but what we haven't talked about is the rental structure. You know, it's very rare in a lot of these markets to find a vacant building that's just ready for conversion. 
And so a lot of the sponsors who are out there have a building that they want to recapitalize and execute on or a new life science converter wants to wants to buy it and bring in a new partner. But those leases don't roll for one, two, or three years. So you're taking forward risk on life science conversion two or three years out, um, which obviously you need to really focus on well, what's the risk that you know demand in the market is going to be just as strong. Rents are going to be similar, if not greater than they are today. And what's the cost going to be to convert those buildings? So um, those deals are getting financed now, but I would tell you, and I, and, and I assume Nasir agrees with it, that if you're forward looking on that concept of converting an office building that's not ready today to do it, it's 100% about the sponsor and, and their track record and, and how they've executed in the past. Quite a bit to underwrite here. Uh, your point around sponsorship, both of your points around sponsorship being uh, an incredibly important part of the the puzzle here uh, is well taken. Um, you know, another another thing that uh, I know investors are looking to underwrite constantly, and it's a topic that comes up on this podcast, I think just about every episode now, uh, is ESG. So, Joe, from your perspective, as you think about life sciences and underwriting different ESG factors, um, what's kind of most in focus there from your perspective? Um, well, I, I'd start by saying, you know, ESG is, and I can't stress it enough, it, it's just such a critically important component of our investment strategy across all product types. Um, so I wouldn't say there's a significant difference in, in ESG for life science um, importance versus even our general office asset investments. That said, since these user, uses are, are more energy dependent, uh, it's important to consider ways to have a greater impact on, on on energy reduction. There's also heightened importance on you know recycling uh, disposal protocol um, based on the fact that you know the life science uh, tenants tend to create greater waste output. Um, and and of course, as I mentioned before, these are people working in buildings, and you know so we're just as focused on health and wellness, and especially on account of the pandemic. Uh, as an example, in our in our San Diego conversion, um, you know, we're working with our partner. Again, we're the majority equity partner, and we always want to be that way. Um, but we're upgrading the energy management system. We're, we're installing needlepoint bipolar ionization air purification within the HVAC system. You know, that's more on the S part of the, the ESG component. Um, you know, but we're also doing that in our office buildings as well. Um, it, it's a little bit more important for life science because of the, you know, you have chemicals within the space and you need to bring in greater outside air um, within a lot of these buildings. So you want to make sure that you have that circulation. It's also, you know, that gets to the larger ceiling heights and the ability to vent a lot of um, a lot of the chemicals outside the building or just exhaust outside of the building. So, um, you know, I would just end by saying ESG is important across all all components of our investment platform, but there's a lot you can do on this front within life science. Yeah, that's that's really interesting to hear some of the really specific factors I think that need to be underwritten here um, from an ESG perspective. I think our investors are, are very interested in, in hearing about that. Um, and as a side note, I have to congratulate you for in 50 episodes being the first one on this podcast to ever use the phrase uh, needlepoint bipolar air purification. So that is something that I am going to have to Google. Well, well you, wait, wait a minute. You missed ionization. Uh, okay, clear. Okay, <laughs> I, I clearly need a, a a separate tutorial on this topic. Our, our engineers have burned that into my brain, so it just it, it comes right off the tongue. 
Um, well, listen, we, we've covered a, a, a great amount of detail in a short amount of time here. Um, uh, I'm sure we can we can follow up, and I, and I would encourage uh, I would encourage our listeners to, to follow up uh, with us as well on this topic. But um, Nasir and Joe, I wanted to just ask you if you had any parting words um, for listeners. You know, maybe they've got an allocation to this space. Maybe they're considering it. Uh, but any any parting words you would you would offer, Nasir? I'll start with you. Yeah, thanks, Greg. Look, I think that um, life science still has a, an upward trajectory and should be a part of you know almost anyone's diversified real estate strategy. Um, but we've highlighted some of the things to be cautious about. I think Joe touched on one aspect briefly that I think I'd, I want to just again advise our, our listeners to think about is. When we look at the underlying tenancy of, of, of these buildings, especially the multi-tenant buildings, there's a, a certain level of risk with a lot of these smaller tenants that are being funded by venture capital uh, that have sometimes very short lifespans. And it reminds me a little bit of the, the craze in the early 2000s with every dot-com that came to market had tons of capital being thrown at it because it was going to be the next Amazon. So we spend a lot of time making sure that we understand the tenancy that goes into to the buildings that we lend on. And we would highlight, or I would highlight that for our listeners as, as something that they need to pay attention Makes to as sense. well. Joe, how about from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, I would just reiterate a lot of what we've talked about. You know, if you're an investor looking at, at a building you own or you're, you're an LP looking at an investor or looking at, at investing into a fund that's focused on this, um, you know, just make sure that there's a, a certain level of discipline across all components of the investment process. How, how is the sponsor or a group like, like Barings, you know, projecting out rents and absorption What's your spread in your income, you, you know, your assumption for stabilized income and your cap rate assumption on the exit? So, you know, how much cushion or protection do you have between the stabilization and the sale price? Because you're getting to a level, as, as, as Nasir said earlier on, where a lot of these deals today are stabilizing well above $1,000 a foot. Um, and we can get into a debate about what replacement cost is for this product uh, over longer periods of time. Um, but just make sure that you're investing with folks who are disciplined and asking all the right questions. And then when you look to the future, you know, really understand where the puck is going. There is a lot of investment that's focused on new markets and a lot that's going to be driven in these new markets. And, and Asir talked about it in the beginning on some of the filters that we've applied around our best, you know, 16 markets. But when you're talking about life science, really understand what's driving the demand in these markets. Those markets could could really benefit on the technology side. They may not benefit as much on the life science side because you need the research funding. Um, you need a, a certain level of you know STEM employees, but I'm really going to focus on the S part of STEM. You know, science employees. You need the research institutions, um, and and so you know, there's a lot to consider. Ask a lot of questions, but don't be scared. Life science is here to stay. It's a really important component of the real estate uh, universe. And I think it will only continue to grow. And we're very excited about it. That's great. I mean, it's, it's such an interesting space. And I feel like we're just, you know, from my perspective, just starting to kind of peel back the onion on all of the factors to consider here. But I think to your point, seems to be a, a spot that uh, has a real long structural uh, runway for growth. So something that I think investors 
uh, if they're not already, you know, very familiar with, will want to consider brushing up on in the months and years ahead. So thank you for, for this conversation today. Thanks for, uh, this kind of initial foray into life sciences for us. Um, I'd like to follow up on this and maybe go deeper on some of these topics uh, with both of you. And, and also, I would just uh, encourage our listeners to check out bearings.com under the viewpoint section. Uh, the team is regularly writing um, about all sorts of topics across uh, real estate markets. Uh, the research team, which we we have not mentioned much on this podcast, but we probably should have is doing great work under the leadership of uh, Philip Connor and Paul Stewart. And uh, you can check out uh, their uh, publications again on bearings.com under the viewpoints tab. So Joe, Nasir, thanks so much for joining me today and we will talk soon. Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening to episode five of season four of Streaming Income. Remember to follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so that you are the first to hear about our latest episodes. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.